Expect great things, attempt great things. Those were the two points of a sermon. We don't have the sermon anymore, but we do have the accounts of those who heard it that William Carey presented on May 31st, 1792. You might have heard the phrase, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. The from God, for God were kind of added throughout history. His points were expect great things, attempt great things. He preached this sermon to the pastors of the Baptist Association in Northamptonshire in England. William Carey is known as the father of modern missions, mostly self-educated, poor, a cobbler, bivocational pastor, but God used him to awake a slumbering church. Now that sermon that I mentioned, he preached from Isaiah 54, verses two and three. Two of the verses before us this morning. And the context of this sermon was a year before these same pastors had met. And when they met, they, there were two of them, John Carey and, or William Carey and John Sutcliffe, who preached messages that they intended to um, address the, quote, procrastinating spirit, end quote, of the days that they lived in compared to the zeal they thought the church should have to reach the nations for Christ. And there was, a, there was a thought process at the time among some of their pastors that before the church should evangelize, God must do a supernatural Pentecost-style work, like we read about in Acts chapter 2, that he must first do that work, and if he hadn't done that work, it was futile to evangelize. The church had no commission to evangelize, and it would be futile if they did, if God hadn't done that very public Pentecost-style work. And so at the end of this meeting, the pastors asked Carrie to address a couple of questions. Whether or not it was possible for, as well as the duty of, the Christian to preach the gospel among the unreached nations. So a twofold question, whether it was possible for, as well as the duty of, Christians to preach the gospel. An answer he did in May May 12th, 1792, the following year, he published a little pamphlet. This is the short version of the title. Um, an inquiry concerning the obligations of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathen. And he published that and it, it was world changing. Still to this day, you can read people now who talk about reading the words in, in Carrie's pamphlet for the first time and it, God using it to call them into missions, God using it to in, in empower them and light a fire for missions by reading his words that he wrote in 1792. Well, this meeting of pastors met again at the end of that same month, May 31st, 1792, and this is where he preached the now famous sermon, expect great things, attempt great things from Isaiah 54, 2 and 3. The very next day, June 1st, he presented his idea to form a missionary sending society to these pastors there in Northamptonshire in England. And in one of these meetings, this is where the famous um, rebuke comes from an older man in the, in, the, in the group of pastors. He said, young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. 
When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. A little bit of hyper-Calvinism in there, wouldn't you think? <laughs> well, later that same year, October 2nd, 1792, those same pastors formed the Baptist Missionary Society. A year later, William Carey and his family were among the people that were sent as the first missionaries, and the motto of that organization became, expect great things, attempt great things. Now, why on earth would William Carey choose Isaiah 54, verses 2 and 3, to motivate people to missions? Wouldn't it be so much better to choose a New Testament text like the Great Commission or, or some other text? Well, I think he chose it. I mean, I, I don't know William Carey. I'm not that old. <laughs> but he understood what was going on in Isaiah 52, 13, or 52, yeah, 50 through 13 in that fourth servant song, and then into 54, and then into 55. Remember, when, old, when New Testament writers quote a verse from the Old Testament, they're assuming the entire context. Remember, we've learned that before, right? That's part of our hermeneutical approach. We're assuming that they understand the context of the verse that they wrote on. And so Carrie understood the context of the passage that he preached from, knowing that Isaiah 54 gave the fuel and the roadmap to success for reaching all the people that God ever intended to save. He understood that. And so that was his text. And his pamphlet and his sermon ended up used, being used by God to change the world of reaching missions of reaching people for Christ and the missionary societies that would start to send. So when we look at Isaiah 54, I want you to keep this in mind. We want to keep Isaiah, 50, Isaiah 54 in his context, right? Isaiah, where he's writing, uh, you know, in that uh, uh, late 7th, early 6th century, but he's also dealing, or late 8th, early 7th century, but he's also dealing with those in Babylon, Right? We've seen that since chapter 40, those who would be future um, taken into Babylon in captivity. But we've also seen these constant nods to the fulfillment in Christ, in the servant. And we saw that no more clearly than the last five weeks as we looked at that fourth servant song at the end of Isaiah 52 into Isaiah 53. Now we're going to see the fruits of the servant's work. Now remember, if we learned in that fourth servant song that the servant would come and die and be raised again so that he would draw people to himself so that he would have seed, right? He would have offspring, and this was all the work of God, and he would see that offspring increase, and he would see everything that the Lord intended to do to him take, do through him take place, and we saw all of that was the Father's will, right? It was Yahweh's will to crush him. If we saw all of that to be true, then what we saw was not just release from physical captivity. In fact, that's not what we were seeing at all in the fourth servant song, was it? We were seeing believers released from the captivity of sin. And so if we're going to look at the fruits of that, we are going to see that Isaiah is prophesying about when Jesus comes what after he comes and accomplishes what he did on the cross that we learned in, in that fourth servant song. And he's telling us how that fulfills Old Testament scripture. And it is, it is telling us about the fruitfulness of this work. And we will go from the Abrahamic covenant to the new heavens and new earth, all in this passage of scripture. 
So this is one of those buckle up times, right? We need to realize that Isaiah is prophesying about things that that the Lord is intending to do in the future and it affects us today in the church. It is a manifesto for the power of the gospel to accomplish what God intends it through his church. So we need to keep all of that in mind as we um, go through this text this morning. Well, stand with me. We're going to read the entire chapter, all 17 verses, and Lord willing, we'll finish that today. Isaiah 54. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says Yahweh. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will, pe- and will people the desolate cities. Fear not for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced, for you will never, for you will forget the shame of your youth, and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband, Yahweh of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For Yahweh has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for the moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says Yahweh, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you. I will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be moved, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says Yahweh, who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, Storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles agate and your gates of carbuncle and all your wall of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by Yahweh and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall confute every tongue that rises up, rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of Yahweh and their vindication from me, declares Yahweh. 
The grass withers and the flower falls. The word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So in this chapter, we are shown five blessings describing the heritage and vindication of Yahweh's servants that result from the servants, suffering servants' faithful work. Five blessings describing the heritage and vindication of Yahweh's servant that result from the suffering servant's faithful work. Now in that, in that opening statement, that proposition statement, I'm taking those final two lines and I'm saying that they um, reach back to the entire chapter. There's disagreement over that, but I think these final two lines, this is the heritage of the servants of Yahweh and their, their vindication or their righteousness from me, declares Yahweh. That's what's the final description, the summary statement of all of the chapter. So let's see this. The suffering servant's work provides the first blessing, the blessing of increase. The blessing of increase. Look at these first several verses. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. Now remember this language. There's much language in Isaiah 54 we've already seen in Isaiah, right? If you've studied this, you know this. You remember that we've already seen this whole idea of Jerusalem being brought as a barren one, as one who... Is looking and seeing all of the prodigy, all the, re the refugees returning, right? The remnant that's coming back from, from Babylon. But they said, where did this come from? We didn't know they were there. So, for instance, in chapter 49, um, verses 19 and following, surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants. And those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, the place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say in your heart, who has borne these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away. But who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? Remember that language as if Jerusalem is wondering where have all these people come from and where are we going to put them? It's a foreshadowing of God's blessing that we see right here in chapter 54. The barren one who did not bear, the, the, the one who is, has not been in labor, but yet what is the joyful command? The joyful command is sing and break forth into singing. You, you have left this stage, so we're talking about what God is doing, and it's following Isaiah 53, which is the, the, the bulk of that fourth servant song, so we're starting to see the results. Because of the work of the servant, those who were once barren will now be fruitful because of the work of the servant. Look at what it says. The children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. Now, all of this language is bringing into mind the situation of Abraham and Sarah. You remember that situation? It's all bringing that to mind. This is why Al read from Galatians chapter 4 already this morning, because this verse is cited in Galatians 4.27 to show us that the original meaning of this is pointing us forward to the blessings in the new covenant, 
to the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. The difference between trying to work your way up to God through the law and receiving the gift of Christ through grace that unites you with Christ. So I'm not just saying, oh, well, this is what it's pointing to. I'm saying this is what it's pointing to because we see it from Isaiah 53 and we see it from Galatians 4. And if you remember the context of that, who is it that was the seed of Abraham? It was Jesus Christ himself, the single seed. And who is it now that are the the inheritors of the blessings of Abraham? It is us. It is all of those who are united to Christ because he is the one who comes and fully obeys what he needs to obey and he is the promised seed through whom all the nations will be blessed. You see why William Carey would gravitate to this passage of scripture to, to try to motivate people to preach the gospel? And I want you to see one other thing. We're gonna see several ties into chapter 53. That fourth line in the first verse, for the children of the desolate one will be more, that is exactly the same Hebrew word as the many that drove us through Isaiah 53. Remember, the blessing that came to the many, the many, the, the, the reference of the many referring to the offspring of the suffering servant, that's what we see here as well. It doesn't work to translate it in English as many, for the children of the desolate one will be many than the children of her who is married, says Yahweh. But that's the promise. The promise is you were desolate, but through the work of the servant, there will be many that come to the servant. And remember, we've seen this all the way through Isaiah. We saw it in chapter two. We saw it in those messianic passages that we always think of around Christmas in chapter 11 and chapter nine and chapter seven. We're seeing that Isaiah was preaching a message that was going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ to bring all of those who God chose from the foundation of the world to himself, the people of God that he would bring to himself. Well, look at verse two. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back, lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. So this is the language of those, those, those traveling Bedouins who, they, if they needed more tent space, they would build a larger tent and they would spread it out further. So it's this graphic picture that you need more room. The same way that the children whispered to the mother Jerusalem in chapter 49, there's not room for us, whispering in her ear. We also know that Messiah, according to chapter 16, verse 5 of Isaiah, Isaiah's throne is in the tent of David. So this tenth idea is driving us forward in Isaiah as well. So there's not room, so make room. You enlarge that place. Why? Verse three, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring, that is your seed, your offspring will possess the nations and will people to desolate cities. Everything that you thought you lost, God will restore to you. And in the context of Isaiah 53 and 54 and into 55, he restores it through the work of the servant. So this is fuel for us, right? You understand why he would take, why Carrie would take this attempt and expect idea. Enlarge your tent, do some work. Plant the gospel seed, take it to the nations. Why? Because God will provide what he promises. You will spread. If God intends to do that, why are you not doing it? Why are you not preaching the gospel? That's William Carey's take. Now, what I want us to see here is it's the same for us. We need to be preaching the gospel because 
Increase is promised. It's promised according to God's plan, not our plan. It's promised according to, to him drawing people unto himself, not our fancy plans of evangelistic systems, right? That's, all of that stuff is a waste of time. I'm not saying God will not use those means, but it's a man-centered, pat-me-on-the-back approach instead of just being obedient to what Christ said because he intends to reap the benefits, in the language of Isaiah 53, he intends to reap those benefits for himself because God has promised him. Remember, his work will be productive because he's been obedient perfectly to the Father. All that teaching in the fourth servant song. So this is a look at that of Abraham and Sarah. It reminds us of that Abrahamic covenant and the way Christ fulfilled it to provide the fruit, which is all the nations. Or as Hebrews chapter two says it, the inheritance of the nations that will be provided to Christ because of and through his suffering. Remember, we looked at those verses last week. So this first blessing is the blessing of increase. Yes, it is an, an, an increase to the people that are coming out of Babylon, but that this language is not just about a physical release from a captivity, especially since the physical re release does nothing for their sin without the work of God through the servant. And if God worked through the servant to forgive sin, then he still works through the servant to forgive sin because he has come already. And he has lived and died and he's raised and he's seated at the right hand of the Father to accomplish that. So the first blessing is the blessing of increase. The suffering servant, his work provides a second blessing, the blessing of redemption. Look at verse four. Fear not. Now, those are great words in scripture, right? Usually when the Bible says fear not, what's someone, probably us, tempted to do? Fear, right? So we've been in captivity. We know we're in captivity for our sin. We know we're in captivity because we sinned against a holy God who is our redeemer. And now he's saying that he's going to bring us out. And if we're, if we're circumcised heart Israelites, we're hearing that he intends to forgive our sin, right? That's what the believing Israelites were hearing as well. But will he do that? Because we sinned against him and he's a holy God. Verse four, fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded. In other words, humiliated. That's probably the idea that we need to understand there. Humiliated or shamed. For you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. Now, we've seen this image before. We've looked at a lot of passages. We're not going to go to those today. But Jeremiah uses these, um, this idea that Israel in her idolatry is described as unfaithfulness to a marriage, right? We've seen that throughout in a couple of different places in Isaiah. And we looked at all those passages and saw that theology there. Many times in Scripture, the idolatry of Israel is representative of, of being unfaithful to their husband, God, their husband, Yahweh. And that's what's being talked about here. There was sinfulness. You were idolaters. And we're gonna see in here that therefore I sent you away. But there's there, that shame you're not gonna have forever. You see that language there. Be not confounded for you will not be disgraced. You will not be shamed, ashamed. You will forget the shame of your youth. So it was there. 
but it will be wiped away. You will forget it, and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. There's a work that's happening for, see the connection in verse five, for your maker is your husband. It's Yahweh, your creator is your husband. Yahweh of hosts is his name. And I want you to just feel the weight of the names of God wash over you and what comfort this would be if you were an Israelite wondering whether this God can forgive, will forgive sin, but also let it wash over us in those times that we are tempted to fear. In those times that our sin is overwhelming and we think we have no recourse to it. It's constantly overwhelming us and we're constantly capitulating. Let it wash over us as well. For your maker is your husband. Yahweh of hosts. The Lord of all the armies in the universe is his name. And the Holy One of Israel that's Isaiah's name, isn't it? All the way back to Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. All the way back to there, the, the Holy One of Israel brings us the totality of the character of our God. All of his perfections dangled before us in one name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. Now that's fresh air, isn't it? We are sinners and the people in, in captivity know that they were in captivity because of their sin. But now God is revealing himself with these powerful names, Yahweh, Lord of hosts, and, and the, the idea of the Holy One of Israel. And he says, and I'm your redeemer. I will do what it takes to bring you back in the way that you, from what you have separated yourself from me because of your sin. Remember, God is faithful to his covenant, is he not? If you disobey me, you will have one response, and if you obey me, you will have another response. I will be your God and you will be my people, but the expectation is you will obey me. Now, all this section is reminding us of that covenant at Mount Sinai. It's all reminding us of that. That time where God delivers his people from Egypt, and he says, I have delivered you, therefore, this is who you are now. And he gives the law. And the law is good, according to Timothy, if one uses it wisely, right? So this is what they were expected to live by because he, he has redeemed them. He set them free from captivity. That language of physical captivity and freedom is in our mind, but our context is spiritual freedom and, uh, from that captivity. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. We're still in verse five. The last phrase, phrase Adonai, the God of the whole earth, he is called. So this is a God Isaiah is presenting as one who is powerful enough to do what he intends, right? That's what he's bringing here. You have sinned that required me to set you apart in exile, but because I'm your redeemer and I'm your maker, it's not permanent, it is temporary. Verse six, for Yahweh has called you. Do you see the connection with the last line of verse five and the first line of verse six? The God of the whole earth, he is called. For Yahweh has called you. His powerful name and his powerful character have called you away from where you are. Like a wife de deserted and grieved in spirit, that, that means depressed, overwhelmed with grief. Uh, like a wife 
of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment, I deserted you. So that Babylonian captivity is a brief moment. Can I tell you something? Your captivity to sin before Christ, before you came to Christ, is a brief moment in the scheme of history. You, you may be 87 years old here and came to Christ yesterday. 87 years of being bound and captive to your sin that you're now released from is a short time compared to eternity. So there is this captivity that you were in, even this already not yet life that we're living now, where we know that eternally we will not be separated from God, amen? And, and we know today that we're sinners. You know today you have sinned this morning. And yet it has not separated you eternally from God because of the work of the suffering servant. So it is a short time. It's a short time in physical captivity in Babylon, and it is a short time compared to eternity with our Lord face to face where there is no more sin. For a brief moment, verse 7, I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. <laughs> you see the stark contrast? For a brief moment, I deserted you. I let you go according to your sin, but with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflow, they're going to state it a different way. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says Yahweh. And then just in case we've forgotten, your Redeemer. It's the center of this section of text, is it not? Yahweh is our redeemer. How does he redeem? Through the work of the servant as described in that fourth servant song. So this is a promise for us. It was a promise for them and it is a promise to every person that we preach the gospel to. And you may preach people to say, you're telling me, you may preach to people who will say, maybe you feel this. I don't want to follow or serve a God that gets that angry. If God's an angry God, I mean, how do I know he's not going to change his mind toward me? Well, this passage addresses that, doesn't it? Because God has a right to be angry, doesn't he? We know he's perfectly holy and righteous. So sin draws a perfectly holy and righteous response, and that is death. And God has every right to do that because he is God. He doesn't just look around and wink at sin. I talk about this all the time using that, that silly phrase of it's not a Kmart blue light special. Does Kmart even exist anywhere anymore? It's not a blue light special anymore that, that you got to be there on the right day and the right time and have enough stock. This is the promise of God to those who will repent of their sin and turn to him. That we were sinners, but Christ died to save sinners. And since he died to save sinners, be united with him, that gift of grace is ours. That blessing is ours. And we need reminded both of his righteousness and his compassion every day because we are not yet completely free from the effects of sin, are we? We are freed from its penalty. We're freed from its power, but we're not freed from its presence so this is what we need. This is what we need reminded of all the time, that God is a compassionate God. He is a righteous God, and we bless him and praise him that he put his wrath on his son. It pleased him to crush Christ for those who would come to faith in Christ. Because he, though for a moment overflowing in anger, with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you. Don't let that word go away. Everlasting love. 
for a moment anger, but for his people, everlasting love because he is their maker. The blessing of increase, the blessing of redemption. Then we see the blessing of peace. Look at verse 9. This is like the days of Noah to me. Maybe your footnote or, or uh, your text says the waters of Noah. That, that, that's probably the way the text should read. This is, the, this is like the days of the water of Noah to me. I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So we're in our third covenant in this text, aren't we? The Abrahamic covenant, the covenant at Mount Sinai, and now we're seeing the Noahic covenant where God said his anger against the sin of men caused him to destroy everyone but Noah and his family. That was the mercy that was shown. And it was the mercy that was shown not just to Noah and his family, but to all creation. And so he made the promise. This is why, this is why it is so distressing, almost to tears for me, to see Christians put that, that flag of the rainbow to support sin in our world. That's God's sign of promise. And they can do everything they want. They will pay for that if they don't come to Christ. But when Christians do that, it's grieving to me. God sets the bow in the skies to remind us that he's a compassionate God who will no longer destroy the world in that way. It does not mean that he will not destroy the wicked that promise still stands, but it's the promise that he will not destroy the world for their sin in that way. So he's, he's got us back to another covenant now saying, it reminds me of those days, so what should it remind us of? Those days as well, right? Look at your text, verse nine. This is like the days or the waters of Noah to me as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So... I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. Now, how can he say that? Is this the blue light special day? How can he say that? Well, we know how he can say it. Because his servant suffered on our behalf, right? God remained the just one and the justifier, according to Romans chapter 3, the just one and the justifier by placing his wrath on Jesus so that we who put our faith and trust in him and repent of our sins receive that justification, that legal standing before him and he remains righteous because if he just had a blue light special day, he would, be no, he would no longer be righteous, he would no longer be God and it would be a waste of our time because some God would be bigger and stronger than him. But that's not how he presents himself in scripture. He presents himself there in this way. Just as like in the days of Noah, he's perfect in his compassion as he is perfect in his justice and righteousness. I have sworn that I will not be angry with you. Just insert there, because of Christ. I was angry and I showed that toward Christ. I was angry and I killed my son instead of those who I was redeeming. I was angry and I placed my wrath upon him, the righteous one, the righteous dying for the unrighteous so that the unrighteous could have life. That's how this happens. Remember, we can't separate this from Isaiah 53, and that's what Isaiah 53 taught us. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you because of the cross, and I will not rebuke you. And then he, he sets a seal to it. I mean, if we think about mountains and hills, those are the last things in the world we think that can be moved, right? 
We're, we're just not expecting a mountain to get up and be 10 degrees west tomorrow morning or a hill to be you know, off to the north compared to where it was the day before. Those things just don't happen. And so he uses this idea to say, even if that happened, for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you my kesed, my covenant faithfulness, that, that rich Old Testament word for God's love for his people, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says Yahweh, who has compassion on you. So we have the, the enlarger in the first blessing, we have the redeemer in the second blessing, and we have the compassionate one in this third blessing with this promise, the covenant of peace. Now there's disagreement on what the covenant of peace stands for. But in our context, it's peace that he's talking about, right? You now have peace with God because of the work of Christ. I am not going to hold that sin against you. I am going to be compassionate towards you. I, I, will not, uh, I, I will not rebuke you. I will not be angry with you anymore. And so we have, made, we have had peace made between us and God, and that means we have peace between us and men. That's why unity within the body of Christ is a primary responsibility for the elders of any church to keep. Because breaking that unity, Christ died for that unity. And he's equipped us to love others because he first loved us. What right do we have to place ourselves above God and say, that's an unlovable. When all God has to do, if he didn't make promises like this, is go, you're an unlovable. And yet I loved you in my son, so we can love others in Christ. This covenant of peace shall not be removed. This is a constant promise. We can look at dozens of verses. I'm only gonna look at a few. Six, just to tell you. When he says a few, it might be 20. No, six verses. I could have looked at dozens. John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Walk in the world without fearing because you have my peace, the covenant of peace that he promises never to walk away from because the Father promises that. John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now there's a reminder that the covenant of peace and the promises in this passage are already not yet for us, right? When we're walking in this world, there's no promise that we're not gonna have tribulation and trials because our Lord had trials, tribulation, and persecution. There's no promise of that. The promise is that won't overcome your eternal reality of being with me. You may suffer, you may even die, but your eternal reality, this is the blip. This is, the, this is the momentary light affliction that produces the eternal weight of glory, this life is. But that should empower us, right? We've, we've had this message so many times in Isaiah, I'm not gonna harp on it here, but let us come away from studying Isaiah saying, we should fear no one but God. We should fear no one. It doesn't mean we pick fights with everybody just to fight them because we know eventually we're gonna win. It doesn't mean we do it in an unloving way and not represent our, our savior, Jesus Christ, but we should fear no one. Somebody wants to throw us in jail, well, let, us throw, let them throw us in jail because what does the Bible say will happen when you're brought before the magistrates? I'll give you the words, testify about me. It'll just be a bigger platform. 
I don't know about you, but I don't have a platform and I don't seek a platform. But if God puts me in front of magistrates, I'm expecting him to enlarge my platform, to, to pound my tent stakes in even further and enlarge the reach of the ministry. So these are the promises we should fear not. That's why verse four starts us off this whole section with fearing not. Romans 5.1, passage three. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's the crux, right? We've been justified, legally made righteous in Christ's eyes, not turned righteous, but legally declared innocent in God's eyes because of the work of Christ. We have been justified by faith, and since we have, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're not here this morning and you, if you're here this morning and do not have peace with Christ, peace with God, that's the primary call to you this, this day, today. Before I stop, the call to you today is to say, why don't I have peace with God? And I can give you the answer because you've sinned against the Holy One. And if that is the state that you are in, then I pray right now that God is starting to weigh on you heavy. Like, like maybe you can't even stay in your seat, but your knees are pushing toward the floor in humility because you realize you've sinned against a holy God. This is the answer. The answer is to be justified by faith, to turn toward his son, Jesus Christ, the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53, to turn toward him, Forsake your sin, repent of your sin, turn and walk the other direction. You've spent your life walking towards Satan and sin, and this is the time you turn the other way and walk toward Christ and say, I, for, I forsake all of that. I forsake all of that stuff I used to climb up in my own righteousness about, none of it, because I've offended you. Turning to him, repenting of your sin, and turning to him in faith. The one who did the work, the one who suffered your death, the one who suffered the wrath of God that you currently, right now, today, deserve, turn toward the one who will forgive you. Amen. Because then you have peace with God. Yeah. And nothing else matters. Nothing. And everything that does matter takes a different perspective in your life. Because now you're right with the creator of the universe. Your creator. Your redeemer. And if you do that today, do not leave this place without telling somebody. Somebody to sit next to you, find me, find somebody and say, I think what that preacher said today happened to me today. And let us rejoice with you and start you on the journey. Ephesians 2, 14 through 17. For Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us both one, that is Jew and Gentile in Ephesians 2, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility to abolish the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man, that's the church, in place of the two. So making peace, thereby killing the hostility, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off, those are the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, those were the Jews. So in Christ, we have the church. Just a, a picture in the Old Testament, a reality in the New Testament made up of Jew and Gentiles of all nations that Isaiah reminds us of over and over and over. 
Colossians 1, 19 and 20. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace through the blood of his cross. Reconciling all things on earth and heaven. We have multiple greetings um, in the New Testament. Grace and peace to you from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. It, it drove the relationships of the first century people. Finally, 2 Thessalonians 3, uh, benediction. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace. The Lord of peace himself give you peace in all times and every way the Lord be with you all. So how is the Lord with you all? The Lord of peace, he gives you peace in every single situation that we walk in. So this is the covenant of peace. And the Bible says in verse 10, my covenant of peace shall not be removed because he is the Lord who has compassion on us. So the suffering servant's work provides the blessings of increase, redemption, and peace. As we've looked at Abraham and Sinai and Noah, the fifth blessing is the blessing of renewal. Look at verse 11. Oh, afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted. Now, what, what is the whole message of Isaiah 40 to 55? Remember the first verses of Isaiah 40? Comfort, comfort, oh, my people. That's, that was the, the first words in Isaiah chapter 40. And here we are at the end of this second middle, this middle section, and we're reminded that without this work applied to us, we are those who are not comforted and especially those who were still in captivity, still yearning for that freedom. Oh, afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted. Behold, I will set your stones and antimony. I'm not gonna read all of these again. The, this an, stones and antimony, I think what is referring to is, is, is a substance, kind of like you would, you would put a mortar between bricks, but this is... Um, this is a precious substance, it's a precious stone. It's listed in that list of precious stones. It's referred to um, two other times in scripture as eye makeup, two other times it's referred to as eye makeup, and one time it's referred to in a list of raw materials that the builders of the temple and the crafters of, the, of all of the garments for the priest would use. So what we have is we have this picture of total restoration of a city here, don't we? The city motif has been constant. I'll, I'll remind us of all those places in just a moment. But the city motif in Isaiah has been constant. And he's, he's saying, you that are storm-tossed. And remember, how many times have we seen the judgment of God brought to them in terms of destruction of a city? And all of the worth of a city going out and jackals coming in and nobody being able to inhabit it and the wilderness is where everybody lives. And how many times have we seen the restoration of God's people be described as the restoration of that city? So this is again that same kind of approach, taking all this idea of giving us beauty and with all these precious stones, if your mind is working biblically with your biblical theology, where, what are you thinking about? You're thinking about revelation. You're thinking about revelation in the new heaven and new earth with that city coming down and the new Jerusalem. Amen. And we'll look at that in a moment. But we're thinking of that. So now we have moved from these covenants. We've moved into a nod toward the the final days, the time that, that the new heaven and earth comes and the new Jerusalem. And let's just do that now so this makes sense. Turn to the very end of your scriptures. Turn to Revelation. 
Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw, Revelation 21, 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So the new Jerusalem is God's people. It's the people of God. That is the new Jerusalem, the bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And then we go on, we're not going to read all of this, but we go on and we talk about the construction in building terms of the perfection of God's people, the new Jerusalem. So this is where, back in Isaiah 54, turn back there, we're not gonna, we don't have time to spend enough time there to, to, to flesh all of this out, but back in Isaiah 54, this is where our mind goes, the perfection that will happen, the perfection that will happen when Christ comes and comes back to fully and finally redeem and inaugurate the next age. Look at verse 13. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Now that's a great promise, isn't it? Again, our biblical theology kicks in. All your children, your offspring, will be taught by the Lord. Now, this is the offspring of the suffering servant. Remember, he died for a people. And this is, their, this is the offspring. And he, has, he puts it in terms of Jerusalem with her children. It brings back the new covenant promise in Jeremiah 31. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know Yahweh, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So that's the new covenant promise. Jesus quotes this verse in John chapter 6. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. So this is the work of the Father to draw, right? This is the promise of the enumeration blessing. You will have many people, many children in the first three verses of this chapter. God is behind that. He is the one who makes that happen. So Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
it is written in the prophets, and he quotes this verse, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Everyone who's been drawn by the Father will come to the Son, and the other promises of Scripture in that section are the Son will lose none of them. So all of this taught by God is a new covenant promise that has fruit that God is in control of. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but little s spirit of the world, but capital S spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So when you preach, you are preaching the word of God and the spirit is doing its wor his work, drawing men and women and teaching them what these words mean so that they come to Christ as you preach because God is enlarging the tent. He is enlarging the tent and deepening those stakes. Finally, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. How did God teach us? Christ loved us. And when he loved us and set his affections upon us, now we are able to love other people. So this idea of being taught by God, it's not just some, some um, sparse little statement. This is pregnant theology that carries into the new covenant and all through our life as believers and our preaching the gospel. That's how we can just preach and know that God will do the work because it's all of God and not of us. Well, look back at your text at Isaiah 54. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. We already talked about why the peace is there. In righteousness you shall be established. Well, let me stop here. That fourth blessing is the blessing of, blessing of renewal in 11 through 13. From 14 to 17, we move to the fifth and final blessing that is a fruit of the servant's work, the blessing of protection. 14 kind of transitions between the blessing of renewal, which includes righteousness and being established in righteousness, but it also talks about our protection. In righteousness, verse 14, you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear. And from terror, far from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, now the eyes in verse 16 are emphatic. Behold, I myself have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon of its purpose. I myself have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned, this is what we say, why we sang that old chorus today, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall stand or succeed. And you shall confute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. So here we see the amalgamation of the already and not yet. It's terminology that everybody understands. There's going to be oppression. There's going to be enemies. There are going to be people come against the word of God. But when they come against the word of God, it's not promising that that weapon will never be used against you. But when these people come against the word of God, the word of God will stand. It will produce fruit forever. It accomplishes what the Lord intends. So this is that encouragement to us that in the new heavens and new earth, we've already read who will not be there, right? 
And if we read further in that chapter of Revelation, we would see that there, there's no unclean person that enters in. The kings of the world who have been redeemed will bring their riches in, but there will be no uncleanness in there. So there will be no one to stand against us in the new heavens and new earth. And that's the fuel that drives us in this life to not fear. Because even when they stand against us, they will not be able to take our eternal uh, reality away from us. They can only take our life in this life. Should God will it. Don't lose that. God is in charge of everything. That's all we've seen in Isaiah is that God is the sovereign one. Just think of the people who are in, in captivity, right, it, it, that were being talked about in Babylon. They're in captivity for their sin, but who caused their captivity? God did. God did. He's the one who called the Assyrians to take them from the north into captivity and the Babylonians. He just whistled and they came. Remember the language here in Isaiah? He's the one that called them. So they're there because the, the Assyrians took the northern kingdom and the Babylonians took the southern kingdom. I would test you on your dates, but I don't have time. The Babylonians to the southern kingdom, but it was God behind that. So if God was behind them coming and he's behind delivering you, He's going to be behind delivering you ultimately as well, isn't he? So these are the promises summed up in verse, at the end of verse 17. This is the heritage of the servants of Yahweh. This is your inheritance. This is your life when you were brought to Christ. And their vindication, or probably better, their righteousness from me declares Yahweh. And I want you to notice this occurrence of servants. Remember, we've looked at this a lot, that the first section of Isaiah 40 to 55 was servant was used all but one time of the nation, right? And in the second section, servant was used all but one time of the servant. Now, from this point to the end of Isaiah, we're going to see servants always in the plural, always talking about God's people. So this idea of servant, reading carefully in Isaiah, we see these shifts that tell us, oh, from here on out, when we see servants, we're talking about God's people. Here's the way Alec Motier summarizes this. He calls it untouchable security. The city of truth and righteousness. The city theme is fundamental in Isaiah. The Davidic city, chapter one, verses 26 and 27. The world city, chapter two, two to four. The cleansed city, four, two through six. The joyous city, 12, one through six. The tale of two cities in chapters 24 through 26. One destroyed in chapter 24, the other redeemed, universal and strong in chapter 25 and 26. A second tale of two cities in 47 through 52, one fallen, the other raised, the comforted city, which we will see in, verse, in chapter 66. And the first two pictures in this series, 54, 1 through 3, and 4 through 8, what we're in this morning, desolate Zion represents the Lord's privileged people in their need of the blessings the servant achieved. In the final two pictures, 11 through 17, the city represents beauty and security. Note how this makes the covenant of peace the center of the whole series. And I think he's absolutely right. 
We walk in the covenant of peace because of the work of the servant. Peace with God, peace with men. We, this is the marching orders of the church in Isaiah 54. It is the promise that the gospel will go forth without hindrance according to God's plan until all the elect are redeemed and Christ is sent again. And we get to live in these heady days. We've been given a gospel to preach a field to preach it to. We've been given a life to live for the glory of God. We've been given that life to live in a way that pleases him. And we can never do that outside of the righteousness of Christ being credited to our account. This is the glorious marching orders of the church from the first coming to the second coming of Christ, right in Isaiah 54. And rather than, rather than negate my summary, I'm gonna quit and pray. Because this is one of the most beautiful chapters in Isaiah. And I didn't realize it until I saw it in light of Isaiah 52 and 3. It's an overwhelming picture of the power of God in the work of Christ to redeem a people for himself. And we're at the center of what he plans. Let's pray. Father, thank you for grace and mercy to us. Thank you for this overwhelming passage of scripture that sets everything in light of your will through your son. So this morning we pray, Lord, that these truths would sink in on us, that we would be expanded in our knowledge of and love for Christ because of the work that he has done, his faithfulness to the Father, the fruitfulness that the Father promised and is carrying out every day as he enlarges the tent and deepens the stakes according to those who he intends to redeem. And we pray that our love for him would grow as we realize that he went to the cross and we benefited. We benefited in an eternal way <clears throat> that will allow us to live eternity face to face with you. No sin, suffering, dying, and that will be an eternal weight of glory for us after this momentary light affliction. So we long for that day, but we ask you that for the longing for that day does nothing but fuel and empower us in this day to obey you and to preach your word. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.